Zivie Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Please sign up for my newsletter at zibbyowens.com for updates on podcast guests and lots of live events. This week's episode has been sponsored by A Thing or Two, which is a podcast hosted by Claire Mazur and Erica Cerullo, who you might know as the co-founders of the website of a kind, RIP, or the co-authors of the book Work Wife, which I've had on my podcast. They're all about discovery and enthusiasm. This podcast has been described as a unique mix of urgent discussions of non-urgent things and thoughtful discussions of important and otherwise ignored things. And uh, I'm very much on board with that take. Claire and Erica also send out a weekly companion newsletter with a diehard following. You can sign up to receive it at claireanderica.com. So thanks so much to Claire and Erica and their fantastic podcast, A Thing or Two, which you should definitely check out. I'm thrilled to be here today with Dan Perez, who's the author of As Needed for Pain, A Memoir of Addiction. As the former editor-in-chief of Details Magazine for 15 years, Dan won two ASME awards. And prior to Details, Dan spent nine years at W Magazine, including as the European editor for three years. He currently lives in New York with his three sons. So welcome, Dan. Thanks for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thank you so much for having me. I loved your book. I like couldn't wait to read it when I saw it, as I told you, as needed for pain, a memoir of addiction. So thank you for sharing it with me and, and talking about it today. I'm so excited. Thanks. I'm excited too. It's amazing that that it's here and that it's done. <laughs> and, you know, it's been a really interesting process. Tell listeners what it's about. As Needed for Pain is about my struggle with a massive addiction to opiates, prescription painkillers. The major part of my addiction, which lasted for about seven years, overlapped with my time as being the editor-in-chief of Details Magazine, which closed in 2015, but was published by Condé Nast. So I had this sort of really great and exciting job in media that had me visible to the world and interacting with, with lots of people. But I had a huge secret. I was, was a drug addict. One of the things that I found so interesting is your ability to hide in plain sight with this addiction. Like, if you're an alcoholic, not to compare different addictions, yeah. but I feel like there's some things where it would be much harder to disguise, or maybe I'm wrong, I don't know. But I, don't, I don't think you're wrong. I, I, I think that, well, first of all, you know, yes, I, I was a, like a, you know, quote-unquote high-functioning right. addict, but I was also a, a, a hot mess and, 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 and a train wreck. And... In the beginning, I was able to mask it with some measure of ease. Mm-hmm. But as the addiction progressed, as my need to, to swallow more and more pills grew, I would imagine that my ability to hide from everyone what I was doing I think some cracks started to okay. show. There's no question about it. But I... I you know, so much of being a, an addict is being a con man in, in my case, you know. And so I was running this con and lying to everyone, myself also, most, you know, most, most definitely. But it was like a juggling act. The scene on the roof with Mike Tyson, by the way, was yeah. <laughs> like one of my favorite moments in that you were trying so hard, but physically you couldn't help it anymore. Like your body it. just couldn't mm. hide it. It's that Mike Tyson chapter is actually one of my, if not my favorite chapter in, in the book, because 
it's this, you know, this, this hot September day and I'm up there meeting him on the roof of this building because he's going to do something with the magazine. And I had just swallowed a handful of pills, I think maybe Vicodin at the time. And it all, they, they, they started to hit me. I was wearing like a heavier suit than I should have been wearing. And it was oppressively hot. And we're on the roof of a building, staring up at these pigeons that he kept on the roof of the building. And it just came over me like a wave. And I literally was scared I was going to fall off of that roof. Is this like one of the scenes when you look back? At the time, was this like a warning to you? Or did was it just like part of the... Part of the process. You, you got it. You know, there, there, were, there were no real sort of profound moments. There were few, but you'd be surprised how few there were where I said to myself, hey, like, there's something wrong with you. I knew deep down that I was a drug addict. I knew that I couldn't stop taking the pills. And, of course, I knew that it could kill me. But none of that stopped me, and none of that permeated my, like, everyday thinking. Because for me, my everyday thinking was dominated really just by one thing, which was pills. Taking them, counting them, getting more of them, and not running out, because running out was awful. It was like being tied to, to you know, train tracks. And so the day of my sort of Tyson episode was just an, another uh, just another day. That's how bad it had gotten. Wow. In the book, you wrote about your fear of withdrawal, mm-hmm. what you're saying, like the running out. I'll just read this quote. You said, I'm not sure which is worse, going through withdrawal or the fear of going through withdrawal. The anxiety is crippling. It's like a scene from a horror movie. You are hiding under the bed. The boogeyman enters the room and slowly stalks around. You hold your breath. You see his feet as he goes past. You hope and pray that he doesn't find you. And just when you think he might be gone, he takes you out by your ankles and slaughters you. That is intense. It is. And I just felt that for a second as you read that. Listen, the anxiety of anything is not great, right? Like I took my kids to get flu shots, <laughs> you know, a couple months ago. And one of my three sons, you know, was getting himself so worked up over the, the idea of the, of the flu shot, you know. And, and, and so I see it unfolding in in different ways around me, you know, the way that anxiety sort of can change everything. In the case of withdrawal and and the onset of those kind of like acute physical effects or symptoms, I Mm -hmm. guess, it's those alone are incredibly powerful, right? Your whole body starts to ache. You are nauseous and, and crampy and you can't sleep and you're hot and then all of a sudden you're freezing. It's just, it's absolute misery. The anticipation of that was just as bad for me because I had gone through it so many times that when I knew that it was coming, I would just panic and I would do everything that I could to get more pills. I would call and try to go see new doctors. I would go to an emergency room and pretend to to have excruciating back pain. I would, you would do anything. I would get down on my hands and knees and search the carpet for pills that may have dropped 
over the past, you know, however long. I would search the suit pockets of my clothing and, and, you know, inside drawers because the fear of it coming was like the, like the, the fear of, of some, you know, nightmare creature from your childhood. In this case, I write about the boogeyman. And I was struck also by how many pills you needed to fuel this addiction. Like, that's an insane amount of pills. You were taking, like, dozens and dozens and dozens every day. I was. It was, first of all, it's a miracle that I'm alive. Right? Yeah, I'm. <laughs> and, and so, and, and I know that. And I got sober in, in 2007. And still, every day, I'm grateful for the fact that I'm, I, I'm alive today. Because it truly is just a blessing. It's a gift. But yes, I was taking massive amounts of pills. And as I write in the book, you know, initially I was taking what was what is called extra strength Vicodin or Vicodin ES, which is essentially like the active ingredient, which is hydrocodone, which is the opiate. And that and, and it's it's married with like basically extra strength Tylenol. So I was essentially taking 60 extra strength Tylenol a day. I mean, it's just remarkable. That alone, forgetting even the opiates that, that are attached to that, should, should, have, should have killed me. The disease sort of works in different ways for different people. And I've known people over the years who had, you know, what I'll call like a low-grade addiction, maybe needed, you know, seven or eight pills a day. In my case, I was taking 15 at a time, four hours a day. I mean, excuse me, four times a day, every four hours. It's just, it's mind-blowing. I know, it's crazy. It's crazy. I can look back on it now with a smile on my face. Yeah. And I can look back on it now and, and kind of just be like, oh my God, that was nuts. But I don't minimize what I went through and what other people are going through. Not only is it an insane amount of anything to put into your system, but... It's also a very difficult amount to keep yeah. around. Yeah. So I had to get crafty, and in, in some instances, I got very lucky, and I would find ways to, to sort of to get these pills. And you start, so one thing when I read any books about addiction or I hear any stories, I always want to know, like, well, how did this happen? Like, mm. how did this guy had it was it something in his childhood was he always destined to be addicted to something was it just happenstance like what factors sort of play into it could you have seen it coming and that's why I thought it was so great because you wrote a lot about your childhood and you know feeling a little bit on the outside of things and a little awkward not that that makes somebody likely to be an opioid addict later in life but you know just how even you know you doing magic alone in a bathroom during a bar mitzvah and getting caught by people hooking up and you know like like all those scenes. And then it was just a random cartwheel you did. Yeah, I mean, listen, no cartwheel a grown man does is random. Um, <laughs> uh, it's, it's, it's a bizarre thing. So, uh, uh, yeah, you make some really great points. A couple things. One, it's really impossible for me to know whether or not I was destined to become an, an addict, right? Whether or not there's some sort of genetic, I believe that this is a disease. There's no question about it. And I want to be really clear about that. I just don't know what did it. Mm -hmm. I, I wrote 
a lot about my childhood so that I could contextualize what I think were the things that that helped, you know, sort of lead to lead to this, including never like never really feeling like one of the guys right. and always feeling a little bit like an outsider. And as I write in the book, I, I feel like everyone had been given like a manual mm-hmm. on how to do it and boys and girls and men and women and how to this is how you do it. This is this is your blueprint for life. Mm-hmm. And like and I didn't get one. And so I, I never felt, I uh, never really had a sense of belonging. So I escaped through magic, right? Yep. It was a real huge escape for me. I loved to do magic tricks and to watch magic shows and, and to learn magic tricks. And, and while my brother, who was incredibly, incredibly popular, was out and about doing things and the captain of the lacrosse team and doing all of these things. And I was kind of alone in, in my childhood basement pretending to be David Copperfield and doing magic tricks, also teaching myself to juggle. But who knows? In, in my case, though, to circle back to your question, yeah, I hurt myself, which is like super common, right? People, not the way I hurt myself, uh, which was doing a cartwheel to try to impress a woman whom I didn't even know. And, in, uh, in the marble lobby of an office building. In the but, marble okay. lobby of, a, yeah. of, a, of an office building in, in lower Manhattan. Yeah. And I came crashing down. And surely I made a a great impression (laughs) and ultimately needed to have back surgery. And now this is incredibly common, right? These drugs are prescribed. And I think this has changed a little bit, right? So this this was in the late 90s, right? Um, These pharmaceutical companies, not that we need to get spend a lot of time on this, but but they they had sort of... um, spent hundreds of millions of dollars marketing these drugs to the medical community and and did falsely minimized the risk of of addiction. So doctors were prescribing these drugs very freely. So it's not uncommon to hear about people that had some kind of injury and ultimately become addicted to drugs like this. My brother actually is a um, producer, and he did a movie called Ben is Back with Julia Roberts. Mm-hmm. And Lucas Hedges plays a character in the role who literally had one small surgery, and then it becomes, like, it's exactly what you're saying. It's all it takes. It's all it takes. It's all and it she, takes. It, there's a scene where she, you know, confronts, basically, the family of the doctor and was like, mm. you, you know, this is your fault. Like, you ruined our whole lives. Like, it's really powerful, because, like, the one... I don't know. It's just one misstep in life. It's like one little thing, and then your life goes off on a whole different tangent. Listen, it's one car, right? cartwheel gone wrong. It's one. It's you just know? crazy. And um, and and now here we are, yeah. right? And so, I will say this: there's there's I have very few regrets, you know, and and I I you know incredibly grateful, and I I really believe that I, I like yeah. this was my path, and that may seem a little sort of hokey or new agey, I, I, but like, this is, I'm here today. I'm talking to you. I've had the opportunity to write this book. I'm a dad. I, you know, I'm, I'm here because of all of this, you know? So there's nothing I would go back and change, including the cartwheel, I think. Hmm. And you also talked a lot in the book about your relationship with food, which mm-hmm. I feel like is more rare from, I mean, not to be gender stereotyping. but This is a little more rare, yeah. But it's a little more rare, and so beautifully, the way you talked about, like, 
tracking all the things that you would eat and how just terribly you were treating your body in terms of the types of food, the amounts of food, how you then felt about your body, like your clothes feeling tight and sort of your abuse of yet another substance sort of along the way. In many ways, that's that's exactly what it was. I think as a child, I struggled with, maybe not as a child, but as a teenager, I, I struggled with my my body. I was not overweight, but I was surrounded by this group of of guys, friends, and I mentioned my brother, who were athletes. They were in terrific shape. And and I remember quite vividly one weekend, a group of friends, and I was included in this group, decided, let's see if we can make a little bit of money washing cars. And there were maybe four or five of us, and everyone but me had their shirts, their shirt off. And I just never felt comfortable taking my my sh- my shirt off. And ultimately, you know, when I when I years later when I developed this this addiction, I started to eat in very sort of unusual and unhealthy ways. First of all, I I was convinced that if I ate before I took the pills, it would minimize their effect. And I wanted like a maximum impact with respect to the high that I was getting. And so there was almost like intermittent fasting in mm-hmm. some some ways, you know, because I was like, oh, you know what? If I'm going to take these pills in an hour and a half, then I should probably not eat now because I don't want to have a full stomach. So by the time I would take the pills, the high would would kind of roll over me, I would be starving. And so I would eat lots of bagels with tons of carbo-loading, right? I was eating bagel on bagel on bagel on bagel on bagel. I was eating ice cream by the pint. I was eating tons of candy and Twizzlers and things like that. Pop-Tarts, which I don't think I wrote about in the book. I was eating lots of Pop-Tarts. It was unbelievably unhealthy. As I write in the book, like, that alone should have killed me, forgetting even the, the, the drugs. And I started to get, he- you know, heavy, you know, and, and self-conscious about that and, and not feeling comfortable about that and being in a job that had me, you know, like a somewhat, I don't want to overstate this, but a somewhat public-facing job, certainly within the, the media world. And it was tough, you know, and, 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 and so I was feeding lots of things into my body and, and, and all of them were unhealthy. I was also smoking a ton of cigarettes at the time. And, and yeah, it was, it was bad. Wow. So tell me about the book part of this whole journey. Mm-hmm. When did you decide that you wanted to share this whole experience? How did this book come to be? What was the process like? Was it really emotional? Was it like, just take me through the, the, the whole thing. You know, I, I think once I started to have a little bit of t- sobriety time, I, I was able to, you know, if you've ever been to, if anyone's ever been to a meeting of a 12-step program or any kind of group meeting where people are coming together to help each other deal with a common issue, it doesn't have to be a 12-step program, you find that, the stories that that you hear as you go around the room are tragic and heartbreaking, but also sometimes really funny mm-hmm. and relatable. And I started to realize that I I had stories to to tell. I actually my initial sort of like 
thinking about the book was 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 rooted in that Mike Tyson chapter because to me it embodied everything that had had happened to me and I so I started talking about it a little bit with friends that have written had written books I hadn't kind of openly disclosed my status as an addict in in recovery. And so I was still working at Condé Nast, but I was to people that I knew well and trusted, I was talking to them about it. And one friend who became my agent is who is, is a man named Bill Clegg, oh, yeah. who has he uh, wrote an amazing book. has also written about his struggle with addiction. That was a great book. Yeah, Portrait of, of an Addict yes. as a Young Man was a really wonderful book. And so Bill was a friend, and I started talking to him about it. And he's like, well, you know, put pen to paper, you know. And this is what people say, right, when they, you know, because I've had people come up to me and say, hey, I've been thinking about writing a book. Mm-hmm. And really the only thing that you can say to someone when they it's say that right. to you is, write. <laughs> yeah. You have to start writing. Then that's awesome. Write, you know. And mm-hmm. essentially that's what Bill had said to me, and I didn't. But I've been thinking about it. And then I, you know, I was away on, on a trip. I was actually in Tel Aviv and I saw something that just triggered a very powerful childhood memory. And I was like, you know what, I, I need to start writing. And I just started writing for myself initially and sent a couple of, you know, what turned out to be chapters to Bill. And he was said, hey, listen, maybe there's, I think there's something here, you know, so keep going. The writing process itself is excruciating, as I know you know. It was cathartic and challenging and fun and awful, all wrapped into one. I remember many years ago seeing a 60 Minutes interview with Paul Simon. I think it was the late, great Ed Bradley doing the interview. And he was talking to Paul Simon about his process when writing a new song. And if memory serves, and I hope I'm not getting this wrong, Paul Simon talked about bouncing a ball. Maybe it was a rubber ball. Maybe it was a tennis ball. I don't know that it matters. Just off the wall. Bouncing it, catching it, bouncing it, catching it, bouncing it, catching it. And this was part of his process. And I remember that striking me as being so weird You know, I now completely understand that because for me, the writing process was a lot of making the kids beds and doing the laundry and cooking for my kids. And, you know, my house was spotless because I was (laughs) constantly just moving around cleaning. So much of the writing process for me had nothing to do with writing. It was just sort of turning it over my head, figuring out what's the best way to tell this story. And to really make sure that I was being honest. And and by that, I don't mean not lying, but just like, am I telling this in the truest sense possible? And I'm trying to understand, like, what was motivating me here? What was I really thinking? What did this mean? There's a, a part in the book where I go to an addiction specialist, Dr. Ron, and and I was weepy, and I was tired, and I was done, and I was basically at his mercy, and I was essentially begging him to help me, and he was incredibly kind and and did all that he could to help me. But I, you know, when I look at it now, and when I looked at it as I was writing, I wonder, like, well, 
was I just trying to con him because I was out of drugs and he was going to give me something to help mitigate mm -hmm. the withdrawal symptoms until I could get more drugs? And if I'm being really honest, I think maybe that's what it was. I know that I wanted to stop. I know that I needed to stop for sure. And I knew that I was slowly dying, you know, that I was slowly killing myself. But the addiction is really powerful, you know, and... And I wanted to keep going also. So I had to search for these truths in, through this process. But listen, writing is hard, you know, and, and I've, I've had a lot of friends who have published books over the years, and I consulted many of them during this process. And pretty much all of them said the same thing, which was sit down and write. And that's easier said than done. I'm sure you're right about that. <laughs> Having gotten this out there, do you have any, like, I know you said you have no regrets about anything. Do you feel like it's out there to help other people? Like, is, was your motivation, like, I want to get my story out there to heal myself, or is it I want to help other people who might be struggling, or I want to help people who love people who are struggling? Uh, you know, well, listen, uh, of course. All, I, of, all of it. I, I think it's a little bit of all of it. You know, I think... The idea of helping people in the way that I was helped by reading other people's uh, accounts of their own attempts to, to get sober and, and, and ultimate recoveries was incredibly important to me, right? If I can, can show that there's hope, right? If I can show that, that it, all is not a loss, that there are, there's a way through this, then, then that's that's great. And that's, that's a number one priority, right? I also wanted to just tell the story, you know, I, I think I had entertaining stories to tell and, and I tried to make the book lighter, you know, listen, this is like a very heavy subject, right? And, and I think that there are, are parts of the book that, that can feel heavy, but I also tried to bring lightness and humor and a levity to it because that's who, who I am. Mm -hmm. And so I had experiences, you know, my, my editor at HarperCollins said to me, she said, God, you know, your mom comes off as like a stereotypical Jewish mom. You know, should we, should you maybe contextualize her a little bit? I'm like, hey, guess what? <laughs> like my mom is a stereotypical Jewish mom. You know, and so showing little elements of what my life was like and, and um, trying to bring some humor and levity to such a profoundly serious subject was important to me. But I also enjoy storytelling, you know, and, and wanted to just see, try my hand at it. And so what's, what's coming next? Do you have another book you're that's brewing in you. Are you are you doing still editing like full time on a daily basis? Not like, right your, now, okay. no. And so I'm doing some consulting, and and I'll likely you know sort of end up back in a regular editing position. I absolutely want to write again. I miss it. I've started making some notes and some ideas, and we'll see. There's a couple of things that that I'm playing with. I'd like to stay in the sort of nonfiction memoir genre or area, but I'm most definitely um, interested in, 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 
and writing again. I obviously am a man. I've never had children. I've never birthed children. I have three children, but I certainly didn't carry them, obviously. So I've heard over the years women that have gone through pregnancies say uh, the, the sort of like hell of childbirth. I'm, I, you know, I, I'm never doing that again. And then it sort of, you know, a year later, or however long later, you know, the, you know, the same women are like, of course I want to ha- have more kids. And so for me, the writing of the book was really intense and, and brutal at times and awful at times. And, and I was pulling what little hair I have left out of my head. But now on the other side of that, I can say to you, you know, yeah, my God, I absolutely want to do that again. It was just incredible and amazing. And, and I'm, you know, listen, I'm really excited about this. Yeah. Well, know? as a reader, I didn't want it to end. I want to hear, like, what next? Like, what happened next? Like, anyway, so I, I will be eagerly waiting to, for part two if that ever comes. I, I think it might come. I think it might come. I, I, I will say, though, because you're right, the book ends when I have 92 days of sobriety and my oldest son is born. So I, I, I will say, and I think it's important to say that, that this is a sobriety and recovery are hard. It is day at a time as the, as the sort of trite and cliched saying goes, but I have been sober since then. And it has been a lot of work and I have had an extraordinary support network blossom around me, people that I never thought I would connect with. I have really beautiful friendships with. And addiction is awful. It is opiate addiction specifically, but all forms of addiction. It is the great equalizer. If it can get to me, New York media executive, if it can wipe out towns in the Rust Belt, and, and everyone in between, it is brutal and merciless and it knows no bounds. So it's important for me to say that, that I am doing it a day at a time for the last 12 plus years. And um, there, there is hope, there, there is a light at the end of the tunnel for people that want to stop and reclaim their lives. And I just wanna throw out this great company I know of called WeConnect, which really helps with the recovery process and helping people maintain their sobriety. And it's a really fantastic app. And it should, if anyone wants more help, look into WeConnect. Yeah. And that's wonderful. And I, I think where we have to go now is focusing more on on recovery, more on education. Mm-hmm. It's, it's one thing to try to get these, to stop the the um, boom of these drugs, you know, to, to slow that down. And that's starting to happen, mm-hmm. I, I think. There have been some fairly high-profile settlements coming from Johnson Johnson, Purdue, and, and, and others. But the real focus needs to be on education and recovery, yeah. you know, and, and providing treatment options and recovery options for people. I, I had the good fortune of being in New York City. Mm-hmm. You know, I also had the good fortune of being able to afford whatever I, I, I needed. That's, that's not the case for most of this country. So I don't know we connect, but based on what your description, yeah. you know, or, or any other or place any other, yeah. you know, or any other sort of like things that can help people connect to other people in recovery is incredibly, incredibly important, you know, because 
it's one thing to stop doing something, mm -hmm. in my case, taking pills. It's another thing to stay stopped. And connections with other people that are going through the same thing will really help you stay stopped. That's amazing. Well, Dan, thank you so much for sharing your story, for this amazing book, and for coming on this show. Thank, thank you. you so much for having me. <laughs> I really appreciate it. My pleasure. You've been listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books with Zibby Owens. Please make sure to sign up for my newsletter at zibbyowens.com to get more updates about episodes like these and also lots of live events. Thanks so much to Claire Mazur and Eric Cerullo and their amazing podcast, A Thing or Two, which you should definitely check out. You can follow me on Instagram at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You could always email me at zibby at zibbyowens.com. 